0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 64.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working
2: class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Goudreau.
0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 64 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. Got uh, another great show for you today, another two-guest show, where we're featuring, of course, producer-engineer-mixer Johnny Sangster, who has worked with Mudhoney, the Posies, and Super Suckers, and Smoosh, as well as the fucking Eagles and the Cute Lepers. How about that? And we also have Mr. James Lindenschmidt schmidt from Real Traps back for part two of our acoustics discussion, where James is, of course, helping me out, uh, consulting about changing my room up, dialing in in acoustically speaking. So got James coming up and Johnny coming up. So James and Johnny, Johnny and James coming up. Right. It's a slightly rainy day here in Lafayette, California, and my bulldog Moto is right under my desk, cuddling up next to me because he just doesn't want to be cold. So it's a usual Friday, just sitting here at the desk, like everybody else, looking at a DAW, drinking coffee. With a dog at your feet, so uh, that's my plan of what I'm going to be doing today. Hopefully, we'll get out and get off my ass at some point. But, but for now, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion with uh, James Linden Schmidt, part two uh, of our discussion about acoustics here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome back to part two. Absolutely. Of our discussion. So I I did my homework. I did a couple things. So I I talked to you, and then I I went to the Real Traps website, Mm -hmm. and I checked out the pink noise. Right. And I played that, and I pulled out an SPL meter, and at the old position, um, I documented on a piece of paper and I sent you that image. uh, It should be called WCA room. Yep. I'm looking at that right now. This is based on right after that conversation, I hadn't moved anything and I just wanted to see where things were at with regards to this pink noise. So all those numbers correspond to the SPL reading, Uh, the mixed position, uh, it was 90.2. And then all those other numbers correspond to what it looked like in various parts of the room. Got Just it. me okay. kind of randomly holding stuff up.
2: And it definitely was fascinating
0: to see what would happen.
2: Yeah, it's very very instructive if you haven't done that before. It's a good exercise to really sort of get a real-world thing for how different it is. Because those SPL readings that you took, I mean, that gives us some data to work with. We know how loud the total sound pressure level is in those places in your room. But what we don't know is what's happening at all the various frequencies. and in, in, in other words, that reading that you're getting is basically averaged out across the frequency spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So 85 dB in one place is not going to be the same as 85 dB in another place because the frequency response will be different for those two places, even though they both average out to the same overall volume level. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. it does.
0: So I took those readings, and then I was getting antsy um, and wanting to – start moving stuff and changing stuff so right i i went ahead and i moved my speakers and my desk and uh i aligned everything with a tape measure to the front wall so okay. the wall i'm looking at right and then i sent you two frequency response curves to take a look at yep. uh, that were taken with the SonarWorks software okay or one of the ones that you got is is from um What's that from? That is from November eighteenth, twenty fifteen.
2: Yep. I see that That's
0: one. That's in the old spot. And the one from March 2nd, 2016 is is also there. They don't look all that different. Right. There, I mean, there's a couple details in there, specifically in the low, low mids, low and bottom, bottom end. Right. That's the top for the most part is pretty close, but there wasn't too big of a change. But there is that big jump. Um, just after a hundred hertz, that just seems consistent.
2: That's a stubborn one. Now, one thing I'll ask um, about this is, is, I'm I'm pretty sure, and, and I'm not familiar with the software that you're using. The, the sonar works, is that right?
0: Yeah, it's a okay. um, it's it's a software that does corrective uh EQing sure in a plug-in form it it right. walks you through a, a a setup process it you take right. a, a microphone that and and i got the microphone from them and so you have to enter the serial number of that microphone because i think that microphone is not you know the most uh top of the line so it has its own anomalies and they know that so i guess the calibration curve that i received for that microphone compensates for that but then it walks you through a setup process where uh, it you know says you know hold the microphone here please aim the microphone at this distance from here and here and it I mean it 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 takes it's takes about a fifteen to twenty minute process right and then you then you see like this is what the curve of what they see in your system right look like right. and that's what I've sent you and then they in their software and the plugin it corrects for that so my goal is to make that uh, get that as linear as possible I guess sure be the right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and you know the, the other thing too that is that once once treatment is in the room and we've got the treatment installed, your before curve is going to look a lot different. So you want to rerun that software and reevaluate it at that point, and uh, um, you know because it's it's what it's going to try to do is going to be very different once you get some treatment in there. So so the, this has the before curves for left and right superimposed on each other for for the viewers or listeners. Exactly. Or okay, I do see that little bump on the left channel. Is a little bit bigger now than it was previously. And, it is, uh,
0: but what's interesting when you compare it to the uh, November reading of 2015, mm-hmm. the there's more there's um, there's more uh, I guess symmetry, right? Like the left and the right look yeah, quite different in November, yes. And that's when I had the the speakers kind of off kilter right. from the wall, and right. now they're closer,
2: right? Absolutely. But we've
0: also but we've also picked up a bigger curve.
2: So tell me what you changed in that. You moved your your listening position and the speakers. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Everything went forward as far as I could go. It's not that far away from where I originally was. It's just that there's right. more symmetry with the speakers and the wall. Right. And I made sure that the distance between the left wall and the and the, and the left speaker and the right wall and the right speaker was much more equal so that there's good at least – I know I keep saying symmetry, but there's at least symmetry with
2: that. You're closer. You're more symmetrical than you were previously. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's yeah, and that's good. And that, and so that that is no surprise given the graphs. The graphs look that you like. You're more symmetrical. That's the thing too, because your room is such an unusual shape. It's, I mean, it seems like there's all kinds of crazy angles and stuff that you don't have a lot of symmetry in there to begin with. So you sort of have to sort of create it you know, with, with good placement and good treatments for sure.
0: What I realize is that from left to right, uh, the room is sloping upward at a very, very subtle angle, but it's only because I painted that wall okay. and left the ceiling white that I immediately was noticing that. Right. I don't know if it's an optical illusion or not. It doesn't seem like it is. It seems like what I'm seeing is what is, is actually in the the construction. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you were sitting where I'm sitting, I think you'd be like, what the
2: hell is going on with this room? Right. Right. Yeah. It is very, it is, it is a trip. It's going to be fun to treat. So you move forward relative to where you were last time, which is good because I think, you know, a, it's just a better place to be, but also that almost creates a little bit more space along the rear wall for treatments on that rear wall, generally you want thick treatments, you know, and by thick, I mean, you know, six inches or so, if we can get away with that. You've given me a great visual with the rock and the pond and the, the way the low frequencies leave the speaker, the bass comes out, ripples out in all directions. The ripple. Yeah. It's to, to take that a step further because it's a three-dimensional space and not the flat plane of the top of the water. It actually goes out in a sphere. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not just the round, it's not just the circle. So it comes, it goes up and down as well as, you know, all the other directions on the plane of the, the ripple in the pond, so to speak. So in other words, take that image of the, the ripple going out in the pond and make it three-dimensional if you can sort mm-hmm. of do that trick. that That's sort of the closest thing to what's happening. In terms of, you know, a base trapping strategy for this room to sort of shift gears a little bit, I, I think the rear wall is going to be a, uh, a key place and particularly that rear ceiling corners. You've got some high SPL readings back there. In fact, the highest in the room it looks like, 88, 87, 85 across there. And, you know, that's not too far from what the front wall is doing. I think those are probably going to be the key places for you to get, you know, to get some bass trapping into that room in terms of just overall effectiveness. And we're a little bit limited for the, some of the corners because of, you know, how things are with your room, with the door in the back left corner mm-hmm. and, uh, and then the bookshelf and the cabinets along the right wall, we'll have to sort of work things in around there. If
0: you look on the right side of of the WCA room illustration where mm-hmm. it says cabinets over closets. So right. there's these cabinets and then about five little over five feet up is mm. the top of the closet. So that, so it actually goes inward right? so that the closet runs underneath those cabinets. And then to the right of that is a built-in bookshelf with six shelves. And that's okay. where like
2: all the gear is. Okay. So that's got to remain accessible and that sort of thing. There's a few ways that we can sort of tackle it. If your room was like a simple rectangular room and, you know, things were a little more predictable, I've done so many of those that I know like the back of my hand and just, it's easy to say just, okay, do this, 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 and this, and you'll be great. But because your room is so unusual, I'm moving a little more slowly than I usually would. And really what I think a big strategy for you is, is going to be to a, just get some base traps in the room and then experiment with placement a little bit. And see mm-hmm. where they see where they help you the most. One of the products that I have in mind for you, I think, would be a good match for your room. is uh, It's a version of our Mondo Trap. We call the Fat Mondo Trap.
0: Um, the Fat Mondo Trap. Okay. Yeah.
2: So so if you can sort of visualize this panel, it's it's a two foot by four foot panel that's six inches thick. Okay. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So it's nice. It's beefy. It's nice and thick. It does really well at the really low bass frequencies because it is so thick. And another benefit of that panel is because it's as thick as it is it stands up on its own. It's got a metal frame around it and it, it holds together. So you don't even have to mount it. You can mount it if you want, obviously. Or you can just set it on the ground. That's useful, especially at first for the listening tests that we're thinking about here. That way you can just get them out of the box, put them in place and just set them there. Like set one like right behind your speakers and then you know maybe put a few along the back wall. Then that'll allow you to sort of experiment a little bit with, okay, well, where exactly are they in the wall? Do they work better when they're centered in the middle of the wall or spread out where some of them are in the corners or maybe, you know, hold some up like in the ceiling corner or things like that. And just, you know, start to do a little bit of, you know, detective work on that end just to find out where they serve you the best.
0: Seems like trying to get rid of that huge, we'll call it a camel hump, right, the frequency right. response. seems like it'd be great to like get that evened out a bit.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and that'll be one of the things that we look for because, you know, we can sit down and, take a look at that, and the peak of that is just to the left of that first line. So that's going to be, you know, 160 hertz, something like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, you know, my guess is you could hear that. If you were to run a frequency sweep, you know, right at 160 is where you get max SPL at your listening position, I would think. The fat mono traps are s- super effective in that range. They go way lower than 160. You know, that's going to be a good thing for you, you know, as far as, like, floor treatments. As far as, like, getting some traps up, like, on the ceiling, like ceiling corners, things like that, how, mm-hmm. how, how does, how is that going to fly in terms of just aesthetics? Do you want to have things up there? Is that,
0: you mean, what is my wife going to say? Well, sure. Yeah. That's
2: <laughs> one way to put it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I have some flexibility there because we each have our own office. Right. Right. Which is good. I think I could do it. I mean, based on pictures I've seen of real traps in other people's rooms, I see that it's like, you have like a two by four foot trap that right. is straddling a corner. Is that yeah. correct?
2: That's really common, yeah. And and typically for ceiling corner installations like that, I would use a different product than the Fat Mondo trap we've been talking about. I would use our mini trap up there that's half as thick. It's three inches thick instead of six. It's still really effective in that range though, 160. You know, that the mini trap doesn't really start to roll off until you're down to about 80 hertz or so. For a treatment strategy there. I think the mini traps make more sense and, and, you know, as far as installation goes, it won't really be an issue. I mean, you know, it, it'll be a little trickier cause it's a sharper angle, which means that the trap will actually be a little further away from the apex of the corner. If that makes sense, you know, cause, yeah. cause it doesn't have as much room it it won't sit quite as far back cause the angle is shorter. But, you know, apart from that, the installation will be the same. Um, and, and those mini traps are good in the ceiling corners for a couple of reasons. One is that they're thinner And they're easier to hang up and they're, they're sleeker looking. They're not as boxy looking when they're up in in the ceiling like that. And, you know, the other thing is just they're, they're easier to install, you know, with the Mondo traps, those are big and beefy enough that, you know, you, you'd probably definitely one, if not two people to hold it in place while the third person, you know, you know, does the attachment behind there. Um, so, so the, the, the mini traps will be, are a little easier to deal with. And they also come in the two foot by two foot size, the half size instead of the full two foot by four foot. So if you've got a oh. small sp- space to work with, you can sneak a two by two up and they're a little easier. You're saying we would go with mini traps that are two by
0: two length and width, and then they're three inches thick. Correct. Now that's good because what you don't see in those images, and maybe you can see it in the video, which you, you'd probably have to review again, there are two support beams that are 11 inches tall okay. and two and a half inches thick. Okay. If I'm... Looking at the front wall, they cut over the left side. They come out, the first beam starts in the corner and it makes its way just to the left of the door frame. So where the door closes and the other one is almost like right above my shoulder and it cuts over about, i would say, two feet okay. away from the edge of the bookshelf. Realistically, in that corner, you could only fit a two foot by two foot and then the space to the other side of it Okay. you could only fit two at the most. So we're kind of limited
2: there Right. in that we can only fit maybe three of those size in there. You know, with bass trapping, exact placement of each trap is not generally hugely critical. You know, the most important thing by far is having enough traps into the room. And certainly we can maximize their performance with good placement. And there are a few things, you know, like the ones behind the speakers, those have to be in that place to do their job there. But in general, like for corner bass traps and ceiling corners, you put them where you can and 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 call it good. If you have a choice between corners, then put it in the one with the louder bass buildup, for sure. We, we have some flexibility there. Um, yeah, the
0: highest bass buildup I see in my um, illustration is 87.
2: There, there, there's, I think there's an 88 on there, too, right next to it, right like right above the door, maybe. Oh,
0: yeah, you know what, yeah. you're right. And now here's the unfortunate part of that equation, too. Right yeah. above the door are two obstacles okay. the the smoke alarm which okay. actually could be relocated right that's no problem and the vent uh from right. the heater which is like you know your average like you know narrow rectangle vent sure um so i don't know if that's a problem or not
2: yeah i know. in general you don't want to block it i mean if you have to block it then the air will flow through the traps that's sort of how mm-hmm. the traps work is they absorb sound on its way through the trap but the absorbent material inside the trap is also an insulator. So it'll also absorb a lot of the heat from the air on its way into the room. (laughs) In other words. Great. Right. So, you know, I mean, maybe experiment and try it and see what happens. And when you turn the heat on and you may not notice anything, because that's the other thing. If it's at an angle, then the air can still get around the trap. Okay. So the airflow is still going to happen. You just might redirect a little bit of it. And then you're putting a big insulator right by there. So it it might affect the heat transfer coming into the room as well. I'm going to take some notes here.
0: Rear wall could be two of the two by twos okay. of, of the mini traps. Okay. And then, and then the center part of that wall could be a two by four, or it might be easier to get two, two more two by twos up there just from a physical standpoint.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: So, so we could just do four two by twos.
2: How much space do we have on the wall between In front? Uh, on the back wall between the door frame and where the bookshelf starts? on the other side in the other corner how long is that oh because i'm i'm also i'm thinking now just low not in the ceiling corners but down on the actual rear wall itself um if if, if we go with with uh that where we're you know going to use those fat mondo traps each one's a little over two feet wide so 24 and a quarter inch or so Mm. so uh, yeah just let me check on that
0: we're looking at like nine feet nine inches okay all right, so and that's from the edge of the door frame to the to the beginning of the bookshelf.
2: Gotcha. Okay. So so we, we could easily get four fat mondos back there along that wall. I'm wondering if we can can we get away with three? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean j- just you know as many as you can get back there, but still have space for everything. And you know, three gives you flexibility too, because again, you can space them out and that gives you a little more space to work with between them.
0: Those are two feet by four feet. Correct. Right now I've got three two by four homemade absorbers back there. Okay. And I would, basically what I would do is I would pull those out okay. and I would
2: swap these in. Right. I mean, usually what I suggest, especially with the fat Mondos, cause they're just so convenient to move around mm-hmm. is first thing when you get them, get them out of the box and just set them on the ground and then do your, get used to them for, you know, a few days or a week or two or whatever works for you and, you know, move them around a little bit. And then sort of once you have it dialed in, then you can install them you know, does that make sense? Totally.
0: The, the length of the wall is somewhat similar on the front. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if we should do three on the front wall. Yeah. Cause I, I think if we do four, it's just going to be too much. It's going right. like, uh, um, to look like, I'm, it's going to look like I'm in an asylum.
2: Yeah. It can, it can definitely kind of box things in a little bit, but um, yeah, that's good. I mean, so at that point, I mean, right now we've already got 10 base traps for the room. So that's enough certainly to be a game changer for you. And I'd, I'd expect improvement everywhere. Not, I mean, that 160 hertz peak that you know we were talking about for sure—you know—that should definitely be affected by this. Pretty much everywhere else is going to be, a, a, you know, flatter and just more consistent. And then, you know, the other strategy that we talked some about last week also is um, figuring out what, if anything, we can do about your reflection points and on this, the angled ceiling above your console.
0: I don't know if you're cool with this. I kind of want to see if we can get away with not putting
2: something on the roof.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: If if if
0: you're okay with that?
2: Sure. Because it's angled the way it is, we talked about this last week so I won't get into it again, but just to remind people, because it slopes up behind your head, it's in other words it's higher behind you than it is in front of you. That mm-hmm. that's going to tend to aim the speaker reflections over your head also. So you're not going to have those reflections bouncing back down. If there's any room to sort of get away with not doing ceiling treatment, this is the one for that reason. We also talked last week though that now, since you're aiming reflections toward that rear wall, treating that rear wall is even more important. But we've already got that covered with the strategy we've talked about so far. Which, so, yeah, that's yeah. what I
0: was hoping we could cover with the the yeah. three mondo
2: traps. Right.
0: You also brought up uh, putting um,
2: absorbers that were on stands, a regular real trap stand, and that's a that's a that's a freestanding deal. Um, and it's you that's know, what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Th- yeah. That that works well. So we can just use a couple of traps on stands for those reflection points. The micro traps are a really common choice for this roll because they're so thin. They're a one inch thick panel. Um, And uh, so they're very sleek. They don't take up, you know, they're not as boxy as some of the larger traps. Also another option is that you can use a thicker panel if you want, like a mini trap, which is, you know, basically the same as what you're putting in your ceiling corners. The only thing I would tweak there is, we want full-on high-frequency absorption for these panels. So if we go with a bass trap, like a mini trap, we want to get what we call the HF version of that trap. In other words, an HF mini trap. And they look and cost the same. Um, we just build them differently so that you, you still have the full-on high-frequency absorption, which you would want at reflection points. The expense of that is you lose a little bit of the bass trapping relative to the standard. The, the HF traps give you equal amounts of bass and treble absorption. The, um, and
0: that's that's a two foot by four foot panel.
2: Yeah, it's the, all, all these are two by four. That's the, the the micro trap is a one inch thick panel that works well. Or if you want the thicker HF mini trap, that's three inches thick, so it's three times as thick. And the benefit there is it absorbs to a lower frequency. Um, mm. it, you know, it's going to go down. It, it it'll even get that 160 hertz bit that you're talking about. So that that might be useful for you. You know, just because of the specific problem you're having at the, in that frequency range you might consider using the thicker traps, you know, but you know, if that's too thick and you just want a, a thinner, sleeker panel there on, on your sidewalls, you can go with the, the micro traps cause you're, you're already going to have a lot of base trapping in the room. Let's go with, uh, let's go with the HF style mini traps then for your, for your sidewalls on
0: stands. What's attractive about this whole thing is having symmetry Right uh, in the coloring and the and the um, the look of everything. So when you have a client come in, right, it, it looks good. Absolutely, and it gives them confidence. And oh, okay, this person has you know put some time and effort into this. This is you know for real, right? Which can be difficult for the average home studio person if right. they have kind of a, a hodgepodge of kind of what I've got now is a bunch of homemade, you know, two by four things that are right. kind of. I'll just say it. They're kind of half-ass.
2: Sure. Yeah, and, and that's that's definitely true. And, you know, fit and finish in general is really important to us. You know, we put a lot of attention and, frankly, expense into it, you know, because, like, you know, the metal frames hold the traps together, you know, and just having those metal frames cut, it costs more just to have the metal frames like that than to build, like, an entire fabric-covered, you know, slab or rock wool or something like that. Um, you know, and, and it's got a powder coated finish on it and, you know, they just hold up really well over time. And, you know, that definitely, that's something, that's something that, uh, you know, was important to us when we were designing these products.
0: Let's just recap here on the front wall. We're going to go with three Mondo traps. Those are two by four foot traps that are six inches deep. Yep.
2: Then the six inch thick version is, we call that our fat Mondo trap. Fat. Okay. So we're doing
0: fat Mondo on the front. We're doing three of those. And on the immediate left and right of the speakers, we are doing uh, HF-style mini trap. Also, is that two by four?
2: Yep, two by four.
0: Two by four. And how in, how thick is that?
2: A little over three inches, about three and a quarter inches. Three and a quarter
0: inches. Okay. On the rear wall, we're doing three fat Mondo traps for that can either stand on the floor or they can be mounted on the wall. Correct. In the
2: corners, we're, we're doing... Two by, two by two mini traps for the ceiling corners.
0: Also three inches thick to be mounted straddling that, that angle. Correct. Okay. Correct. The mounting hardware for that, is mm-hmm. that, is that com- complex? Is
2: that easy yeah. for one person to do? Yeah. It, it comes with it. Um, you can do it with one person. If you have a helper, it's much easier. So I definitely recommend that, um, you know, particularly for the ceiling corners. Uh, but the basic metaphor is it's like hanging a picture frame on the wall. You know, it comes with picture hanging wire. That attaches to the back of the trap and then it'll come with a d-ring that you attach to the wall Um, if there happens to be a stud there you can go right in with a a drywall screw or if there's not a stud and you you know you've got you've got drywall we include molly bolts as well so you can you know an anchor basically that you can get the d-ring attached to the wall and once you have the d-ring there that gives you something to attach the wire to and you just hang them up like a picture frame um there's a page on our website and i'll I'll put a, a link here in the skype box that talks about installation, all the various ways you can install the products, um, okay. you know, and, and, you know, ceiling corners, regular corners, flat against the wall, that sort of thing.
0: What's going to happen next. Uh, f- so this, uh, this pretty much concludes uh, our conversation this time. So right. on the next show, uh, hopefully um, I, I can, I don't know if you have time to, sh- to ship this stuff out.
2: Yeah. I'll, um, I'll have to check with the guys at the factory tomorrow, you know, get a feel for, how long it's going to take on, on shipping. Typically for, for most orders now it's, it's, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, everything's built to order pretty much. Um, So I'll, uh, I'll check with the guys at the factory tomorrow, tell them what we're going to go with and uh, get an estimated ship time for you. And then we'll go from there. You know, once they leave the factory in Connecticut, you're on the West coast. So it's usually about four business days to get to you. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, I'm sure you want a little time to sort of play around a little with them as well.
0: Our next call, which may or may not occur on the next show. Right. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to install and uh, take some pictures and document that whole process. Um, cool. Possibly on our YouTube channel and share some of this documentation and process with our audience. And so that they can kind of follow along and get an idea. And then, um and then after uh, after i get it all installed i'm going to do some reshooting yeah and w- we can reexamine some of that stuff and uh, it's
2: it's it'll be important for you to do some listening too cuz th- this is going to be a game changer in terms of your environment and um you know as you know i'm sure you've experienced this before w- in listening anytime you change one thing a lot of times our ears first reaction is whoa that's different that's different uh oh you know what i mean so <laughs> so, so taking some time to let your ears adapt. And once it gets over that initial, wow, that's different. You're going to be like, "Whoa, wait a minute, hold on. I can hear a deeper, more detailed stereo image now. And I'm not hearing that one frequency, you know, take my head off when I'm EQing a bass and everything just sounds more consistent. And I can hear all the bass notes now, you know, you know what I mean? And, and, and things like that, yeah. that, that you're, that you're going to find when you get these things installed. So yeah, let, letting your ears adapt is a, is a, for at least a few days is a good thing too. So, and then
0: one, just a bit of advice, maybe for for uh, the audience listening. You know, maybe they're interested in in doing what we're doing, right? And they want to contact you, sure. So maybe they can't afford everything at once. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe based on consultation uh, with with you and the Real Traps team, they can kind of figure right. out what what's the high priority for their room, right? It's okay if you can't go all in at once. Sure, take care of the problems so you can slowly start to understand sure. what's
2: going on in your room yeah absolutely and you know and and you know we do that a lot. I mean not everybody you know can you know can can dump three or four grand into room treatment right now you know and that and we understand that absolutely so you know in situations like that i mean the one of the first places I recommend people look at for starting out is uh um, our starter kit um it's a package it's a twelve hundred dollar package and it comes with four mini traps for your base trapping it gets you a great start on base trapping strategies and then it's got three micro traps. Which you could use for your reflection points—one on each sidewall and one on the ceiling above you—and that's enough treatment to get started on both of the main strategies that we talk about all day long, which is the bass mm-hmm. trapping and the early reflections. You know, so that's a good place to look at. You know, a reason—I mean, that's less than a boutique mic preamp, and uh, you're you're in really good shape. Um, and you know, for I have a lot of customers with starter kits, and that's all they have, and that's all they need, and they're happy, and that's great. Um, and then if you find down the road, you want it to be even better, there's going to be, you know, upgrade strategies for you and things like that, you know, but even if, even if the, uh, you know, the, the, the starter kit is out of your budget, you know, just a couple of Mondo traps or a couple of mini traps, you know, five or 600 bucks in your front corners behind the speakers that's enough to make an improvement for
0: sure. And, and you know, you said something, you compared the price to a a boutique mic preamp. And my advice to those listening, maybe you already have the basics to get stuff recorded. And the investment in your acoustic treatment of your room is just as important, if not slightly more important. I mean, obviously you need stuff to record with, but if you can't understand what's going on, it's kind of, you know, it's pointless.
2: Right. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that. And, uh, You know, and the treatment, once you get your room right, all the gear that you have is going to perform at its best, no matter what it is. You know, if you've got a a base level interface with, you know, two or four mic preamps on it, and that's what you record through. You know, if you're recording with a decent mic in a room that's got some treatment in it and you're, you're doing it, you can get fabulous results with that. And then down the road, if you start getting, you know, more into, you know, you know, you know, the boutique mic pres and microphones and, you know, maybe you get a 500 series rack or something. It's just going to be, it's just going to be even better, you know? And uh, once you get the room right, in my experience, you know, just as an engineer, that's kind of how I got into it is I was trying to figure out why my recordings weren't sounding good. And that's when I ran into the room acoustics thing. And it's like, Oh, wait a minute. When you do put absorption above the drum kit, the overheads clean up dramatically. Wow. What a concept, you know, things, Mm -hmm. things like that. And uh, so, yeah, getting the room right to me is, is, hugely important. And it's probably the most important thing. You know, I've, I've got enough experience with it now that I would much rather have, you know, average level gear in a decent treated room in a really bad untreated room, you know? So,
0: yeah, it's, it's a balance of, you know, maybe spend a little less and get some high quality, high quality gear gear but just a couple pieces and right. then have a, a well-treated room right you know, especially for those who are doing edm type music at home where totally there's not a lot of instruments being recorded and there's a lot of in the box action happening it's totally. like um this could really help you dial in your mixes a lot better
2: yeah so. it, it's it speeds your workflow up dramatically because you're not second guessing yourself all the time and if you're a beginning engineer just learning some of these skills it gives you more confidence much more quickly, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's nothing worse when you're first starting that you just beat a mix to death and you spend hours on it and you tweak it out and you get it to where it sounds perfect. And then you play it outside of your room and it falls apart and it doesn't sound right. That's so demoralizing and and it leads to a lack of confidence in your skills. You know, so when you get the room right, you know, it just, it just, you're just creating an environment where um, you can grow as an engineer more quickly. You can be more confident and you can work faster. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, James, Hey man, this is great. Awesome. Uh, I'm man. glad we're taking this next step and I'm very excited to, uh, to get all the the products and, and put them in here and start to hear the changes. I know it's going to be kind of probably a bit of a shock, but I look forward to the shock.
2: Yeah, it'll be great. I'm, I, I, I can't wait to see how you, uh, how you respond to it for sure. Um,
0: so thanks again for that.
2: Awesome, Matt. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I'll get in touch with you tomorrow once I hear back from the guys at the factory with a more, more, uh, Accurate time frame.
0: Okay. Sounds great. All right, man. Later. Thanks again. James Linden Schmidt giving us the uh, lowdown there on the acoustics for the the room here. And uh, so next what's up is I'm going to receive a shipment of real traps, which I will then place around the room and install and do some tests. So that may take a little bit. Uh, So we may not be back with part three on the next episode. That may take a couple episodes to get to. But, uh, when it's all done, we'll put it all together for you and, uh, make it maybe one uh, bonus episode or bonus YouTube video where we kind of document the whole process and we'll provide all the charts and drawings and, uh, you can kind of have a bird's eye view of what's taken place. So you can possibly, uh, do the same thing in your own room and, uh, give James a call and do a little consulting. That's it. So, uh, let's get into our interview with Johnny Sangster here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, I'll give you the official welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being here. You've been up in Seattle for how long? Because I know that you, uh, from what I read, you did live outside of the country for a short period of time. Is that correct?
1: I grew up in Seattle, went to high school here. Right after high school, I was going to take a year and go to Europe. I'd actually been on an exchange program and ended up out in the countryside in Denmark. And when I came back from that short trip... I met a bunch of European exchange students who were living in Seattle for a year and just had this kind of little network of people that I could go visit. So I ended up right after high school, just going over there to travel and and play music. I had been playing music with a friend of mine through high school who ended up in England. So he came up and met me and we kind of just after about a year's time realized, well, we're not going back. We're just going to stay here. so I ended up in Copenhagen for 13 years. Wow. Uh, from from 84 to 97 and then moved back to Seattle with uh, a wife, a 5-year-old and new, a newborn in 97. And so your your wife's from Copenhagen? Yeah, she's Danish. I assume you were doing recording
0: there or were you not?
1: Well, I was playing music. I'd always kind of been the guy in the band to to do the four-tracking thing and and be in charge of making the demos and you know, was interested in that. Through being in that band, got to work with a couple of great producers and kind of got my feet wet in the studio world doing our own records. On the basis of that, you know, got, got asked to produce some records where I was not really engineering. You know, I really wasn't much of an engineer. Just on the musical side, people asked if I would produce things. So that's kind of how I got into the studio on the other side of the glass. Interesting.
0: And, and as far as music scene and, and studio scene in Copenhagen, What was that
1: like? Well, it's a small country. There's a lot of music happening, but it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, major label. At the time, there was, you know, kind of bigger artists and very little underground. So there's some really nice studios all over Denmark. And we were kind of a scrappy rock and roll band. And we were, you know, in some ways, we... We could get to that level where we were playing festivals and, and, you know, had a contract with EMI Records. And it wasn't too hard to get to that level of things in a small country. But it was also very hard to break out of that small country. You know, we toured Germany and we toured Scandinavia. The way Europe works, it's very insular, or at least it was in in the 80s and early 90s. I think it's easier now for Scandinavian bands to get out into the rest of the world. But at the time, it was kind of a closed scene, you know. But there's lots of great studios, and there still are.
0: Now, what what brought you back to the U.S.?
1: Well, I actually, you know, Seattle, I kind of missed the music scene here. My brother plays in the band, the Young Fresh Fellows. Mm -hmm. And he would always keep me kind of in contact with what was happening in Seattle. I just began to kind of miss the very loose DIY, we're just making music for the fun of it scene that's in Seattle. And also, you know, missed family. We kind of had an opportunity when our daughter was born, who was our, our second child, to take a little time off. Um, and so we thought, well, we'll try it out for a year and see what happens. And you know, at the end of the year, we, we ended up staying.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Was it a shock to come back after 13 years?
1: Oh, I'd been back visiting quite a few times. But yeah, it's a it's a lifestyle change for sure. you living in a country where you bike everywhere, and uh, it's a very different scene here. What um, do you miss about uh, Copenhagen? Riding my bike everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And you know I like it's Europe's just a, a different way, it's a different lifestyle, it's older, and it is a lot more progressive in a lot of ways, you know. Although Seattle is a pretty progressive city as well. I was gonna I was say. actually just back. I was back in in uh, Copenhagen working on a record with um a young band called Electric Elephants, and we spent a couple of weeks at a pretty cool studio there called uh, Black Tornado that's full of old uh, Neumann microphones with Denmark's radio badges on them, you know, like all the The European studios, all their microphones come from the national radios. Yeah, it was fun to be back. Coming
0: back to Seattle, uh, what was the game plan there as far as music and recording and what
1: what ended up happening? I had been friends with Conrad Uno, who runs Egg Studio, which is essentially a little tiny home studio in his basement. It was one of the, the studios that spawned the Fastbacks. Mud Honey recorded there early on. He had a record label called Pop Llama Records that put out the Young Fresh Fellows records. And actually, before I had left, he and Scott McCoy from the Young Fresh Fellows had recorded my band, The Sharing Patrol. This is like 1983, and they'd put out a cassette. So I had kind of a history with Conrad, and I was really anxious to to learn engineering. I would produced maybe two records and a couple of EPs for other bands, before I had left Copenhagen in 97 and was really, you know, kind of wanting to make that the next chapter. And so I talked to Uno about it, and at the time he was uh, he was kind of more interested in going to the baseball game and playing golf than uh, being <laughs> in the studio. He'd been really swamped through the kind of grunge boom, and, you know, Pop Llama records had done well. He did the uh, President's United States of America record in his basement there. So he was more than willing to have somebody who was eager to be in the studio kind of take over the reins. And and he really did encourage me to take on whatever came in. Whatever that wasn't specifically had to work with him, he would just suggest me as the engineer. That's when I really started cutting my teeth and trying to figure out how it actually works on the engineering side.
0: So curious, you've come back home from Europe and you you have... A newborn, and, and I believe you said a fi- five-year-old
1: as well. Yeah.
0: I'm curious about just the supporting the family, the financial
1: aspect oh, yeah. of that, <clears> and, <throat> well, then, I, I, um, and diving into recording. I got a job at Microsoft doing software testing, oh. and I did that for about a year and a half. And then I was recording evenings and weekends, and you know they were sweet to let me take time off. If I had a rec- record project, they would say, oh, yeah, you know take a couple days and go do that. Then I realized after about a year and a half that as it is at a place like Microsoft, your pay scale keeps going up every six months. And soon enough, if I had, you know, stayed there, I would be making enough that it would be impossible to leave and go work at a little basement recording studio. So I quit after about a year and a half. Wow. That's interesting. Um, And I, you know, at the, at that point, I didn't really have enough career wise going on to, to support the family, but it. Uh, it took a chance doing it. And it's, you know, like anything when you're a, a, a freelancer, it's Feast or famine, and it has been since then. Now it's been probably been 16 years since I've been doing it.
0: And I'll just jump right to this um, with regards to family and, and freelancing and money and all that. What do you think the key is that's worked for you that others may overlook in terms of how you run your your freelance life from a business perspective or a client perspective like what
1: are what are some of the things that have worked out you feel I think it's important to to place a value on what you do as far as charging people money for producing records and to not not give your time away it 's you know important if there 's something that you believe in that you cut a deal to make it happen, and then I think you just have to diversify too and you 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 can you know you both have to aim for things that you believe in that you want to work on and go for those things, but also realize that there's going to be times that you're going to be working on projects that aren't as exciting and try to learn to have a good attitude about that, be positive about it. And you can always learn something, even if it's not your favorite band that you're recording. Um, Mm -hmm. In lean times, I've taught guitar lessons or so while I got super into DIY and started working on people's guitar amps, you know, when the economy crashed, I was like, okay, yeah, bring your amp in, I'll, you know, fix it for you and earn a couple hundred bucks here and there doing odd jobs or you have to be flexible. There's definitely times where you want to give it up and go work at go back to
0: Microsoft. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, not really. Not really. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting though. I always feel like and I've mentioned this on the show to the audience numerous times. It always seems like corporate audio or we'll just say maybe industrial audio audio that's not band related but is more uh, geared towards uh, small companies or large companies it always seems like the audio demands become more simple obviously less artistic but they also pay a lot more sure it's hard sometimes when you're you're really trying to balance it all out and trying to decide like where you're going to put your focus right Right, because you could chase yeah. up more of that corporate audio. We'll say
1: I do occasionally, and I know you know if it's a voiceover for a commercial, the rates are double what I can charge a band. I shouldn't say that out loud, should I? Uh, yes, I should. Yeah, I mean it's it, they can afford it and they expect it, and that's what it should cost. Whereas if it's somebody who's a barista that's dreaming of making their record and you know saving up their pennies, yeah, you are going to work with their budget for sure. Yeah,
0: definitely yeah. a different a yeah. uh, different economic reality.
1: I think for me it's interesting to diversify and always be looking for different things to be doing, both in terms of keeping it fresh just as a work environment, but also so that you do have contacts out in the world that occasionally bring work in. Every once in a while you do a a commercial where you have to write the music to sound like another song. And, you know, that's a fun challenge for me to do. I would probably hate it if I had to spend all of my time doing that. But to do it a couple times a year is super fun. It's interesting. I always find that I, um, like if I do a
0: run of bands, Mm -hmm. I, I love working with bands. But sometimes, you know, they're... Bands are comprised of multiple personalities, and sometimes there's a, a personality in there that's not always fun to work with. And so right. like after a whole range of bands, sometimes then I'll get like a corporate audio thing or an audio uh, cleanup thing, and it's kind of like, oh, actually, it, it becomes a relief. It's like, oh, sure. okay, very singular, very narrowly focused
1: right. job. Oh, I agree. And I think I'm very interested in all manner of genres of music, too. So I find the wider the range of things I can work on, the more happy I am in in the long run. This last couple of months I've had a great run. I was <clears throat> this band in Copenhagen. It's kind of a hard rock uh band, really heavy riffs, loud. And I don't often do bands like that in Seattle. So it was kind of interesting to go somewhere else and do that. And then I came back and I worked on a record that is super jazz. The drummer from Calexico came up to Seattle to work on it and he's beautiful and upright bass and acoustic piano. I do a lot of singer songwriter records where I bring in musicians and try to steer the sound of the the record based on a concept that just is a singer in a, a song. And those are super fun too, but they're also kind of exhausting. You realize that you can only do a certain number of those per year because it's a huge commitment artistically to get involved with once you've done one of those and you really are longing for a punk rock band to come in and just do it, you know, 10 songs, three days, (laughs) that sort of thing. Boom, done. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to switch it up. Tell me a little bit about your studio, Crackle & Pop. Crackle & Pop started, I guess it's about eight years ago now, with a Digio 2, a pair of uh, Seventh Circle mic prees, and about five microphones, maybe a set of monitors. Cheap, monitors. And then quickly kind of grew from that. So that was an overdubbing room. It's always been located in this little tiny spot in Ballard, Washington, that's about 500 square feet. At this point, we kind of, we've got a decent microphone collection. There's always been a lot of uh, instruments here. There's been a uh, Hammond, Oregon, Wurlitzer, Farfisa, ton of guitars and guitar amps, percussion instruments. So it's mostly been an overdubbing place. And And in the last... Three years I've been mixing. I have a Harrison MR4 console here, and upgraded my Pro Tools and my monitors. And uh, now I'm doing probably about sixty to seventy percent of my work here, and then I still go out to other studios to do basic tracking.
0: And you share that studio <clears> with? Uh, I have two couple partners. Guys.
1: Yeah, I have two partners here. The guy I started the studio with is in the tech world and manages software teams building apps. And when I met him. He was kind of an enthusiastic home recordist. He actually came and kind of interned with me for a couple of weeks and we hit it off and kept kind of nudging each other to find a room. You know, I was like, Andy, you should go find a room somewhere. You got some gear. And he would do the same to me. So we ended up in this room together and then quickly brought on a third partner. There's the three of us. My uh, other partner, Paul, is a, an amazing tube gear guy and he's built a bunch of the gear that we have here he's built there's an LA2 and a Pultec EQ U67 a bunch of mic prees that he's built from hand between the three of us we have some technical know-how and can pretty much troubleshoot most of the gear that's here ourselves and repair most of it ourselves as well
0: what's how's the structure for Crackle and pop in terms of like First of all, do you rent this building? Yeah, we rent a, a room in a building. Is it a single room or is it does it have multiple rooms like a con- separate control room, separate live room?
1: It's like uh if you imagine a five hundred square foot rectangle and then there's about a third of it that's a booth. okay, the rest of it is control room um control room lounge, kitchen, and then the booth
0: so super simple not not big
1: enough to really accommodate a big band. No, but I do occasionally record a band here. Okay. It just means that I'm sitting right next to the drummer, <laughs> uh, which can be done. It's not horrible, but I prefer to go to a, a bigger room just for the sound of it mm-hmm. and to not be sitting next to the drummer. <laughs> so I assume uh, a, a space of that size, your your overhead is relatively
0: low. It is. Especially yeah. when you, yeah. and I obviously, I assume you're splitting it
1: three ways. Well, it's been many, many years since anybody's had to pay rent here. So it's it's paying for itself. Um, it's paying to upgrade itself. But yeah, in the beginning, it was, you know, we'll split the rent and any costs that, that come along. And at this point, it's its own business and it it does pay for itself. And, you know, the occasional gear upgrade we did buy this mixer. We uh, last year bought a pair of coals. So every year, you know, we, we put money back into it. And as a business, it, it doesn't really pay us very much, but it affords us a, a cool place to work that is affordable and we have control over. Interesting. How do you manage the uh, the calendar with one another? The calendar is a online Google calendar, and it's pretty much first come, first serve. Unless there's some conflict and then we work it out between the three of us. Mm-hmm. We invite lots of freelancers. There's, there's quite a few local freelancers that come and use the room. Mm-hmm. In periods, it's pretty much fully booked. So what happens in,
0: do you have a, like, each person gets a certain amount of days? Like, what if you came in and said, hey, guys, I need, I need all of March?
1: Right. Actually, that works out great because my first partner who I started the studio with hardly ever uses the room. He has since had a, a child and he's busy with his career. And my other partner does use the room some, but he is a carpenter, and that's his his trade so mm-hmm. mostly, I'm the guy who uses it the most um and then we just accommodate for each other when the the need arises
0: oh, interesting
1: that's been a concern we uh, at one point we're talking with another freelancer who is as busy as I am about becoming a partner. That was a concern with how much he works and how much I work, just the competition over the calendar. For the most part it it works out. And if the room is booked up for me, there's lots of other studios in Seattle that I'm happy to use as well.
0: And how do people find you? Like what's is it just word of mouth primarily? Mostly, for you? yeah.
1: Mostly it's it's word of mouth. You know, mm-hmm. there is a pretty lame website for, for my work up there, which I should update. Is that sanstermania.com? Yeah, Sankstermania.com. Uh okay. and there is a discography that's probably, you know, up to date from about a year ago up through 2014. Hope
0: you're enjoying the interview here with Johnny Sangster on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica here. I want to tell you about the AT5040, which I have in my possession. And I've had some great experiences with it lately, using it on vocals and using it on uh, violin. Uh, But it's basically, it's designed as a first-choice vocal microphone. And it features an extremely smooth top end with controlled sibilance. Large diaphragm characteristics and a fast transient response also make it ideal for recording acoustic instruments such as piano, guitar, strings, and saxophone. So to achieve this, Audio-Technica engineers developed this four-part rectangular element, which all sums together. So they're ultra-thin diaphragms and they function together. And as Audio-Technica's largest ever element, it provides the combined surface area twice that of a standard one-inch circular diaphragm. So by using four diaphragms in a single capsule... The 5040 delivers the benefits of an exceptionally large diaphragm, along with an extremely low noise floor without increased weight, uh, decreased transient response, or the drawbacks that typically restrict diaphragm size. Another key AT5040 design feature is the advanced internal shock mounting that effectively decouples the entire capsule from the microphone body. Uh, For additional isolation, there's also this amazing shock mount that it comes with. You just pop it in, lock it, and it's really, really a sweet setup. So if you're looking for a microphone that is not an emulation of something old, but it's more based on innovation, you should check this microphone out. It's pretty cool. It's the AT5040. Well, let's get back into it. Johnny Sengster here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It does seem that each year you're working consistently on a lot of records.
1: Oh, yeah. I do this, you know, it's a full-time thing. But it is mostly word of mouth, although occasionally, you know, Definitely, things come through some somebody having heard a record I made, and people come from other parts of the world to to work with me, or I get to go work somewhere else. Yeah, mostly my career has been locally. Somebody works with me, had a good experience, tells their friends, their friends call me up.
0: Or you work with somebody, and their band breaks up, and all yeah. the new all the new member all the members <laughs> going yeah. off to all the <laughs> other bands. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. The records that you are working on are they focused efforts where you start it and it ends in a fixed amount of time, or does it generally kind of stretch out because maybe you have members that are working in day jobs and
1: yeah, it's, those situations. It's both. Right now, I feel like it's it's pretty scattered. The occasional two week block with something will come along, but for the most part, I feel like people have day jobs and and they can afford you know they can afford to take a three or four day chunk and work on something. And then a month will go by, and then we'll come back and work on it for two or three days, and then another month will go by, so yeah, my workload gets very scattered that way sometimes, which isn't always bad, you know mm-hmm. sometimes it's good to have that time in between to forget what you were working on, come back with fresh ears when you hear it, you know exactly what you did wrong and where it <laughs> needs to go, you know yeah um whereas if you are in a record for three weeks straight and finish it up sometimes you do lose sight of that perspective you know that stepping back and getting to hear it with fresh ears
0: as far as your clients are concerned what what always throws me is is you get these people that so they have a day job then they say well okay I'm going to take Friday maybe I'm going to take Thursday and Friday and I want to work you know three or four days over the weekend and a lot of people want to do that so that seems to really sabotage the weekend for the family, for me, in mm-hmm. many occasions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I always try to balance that out. You know, mixing, I do, I mix from home, and I have a setup at home that's that's nice. But uh, I find that I wish I could, you know, make my whole world just mixing and mastering uh, because I can stay centrally located at home. Sure. Do you struggle a lot with, like, how to balance, like, okay, well, there's work coming in, and i got to take that work. right. I also want to be with the wife and the kids.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I mean, uh, before I started the studio here, I had a room in my house that I was trying to do some work. And I've, I found it harder for me personally to close the door, do the work, and then leave it alone and come back and be with the family. So for me, it was easier to have the studio across town, go do the work, and then you know not have Pro Tools on my laptop You know, sure, when I'm home, I still have to be paying attention to the phone and the email and see what's coming in. But that's the kind of division that I've tried to have more of is leave the work at the studio and then be more present when you're not there.
0: Yeah, that's a a balance that some people have a hard time with. Sure.
1: And I do too. I think everybody, you know, who's in a creative field, you're working through it in your subconscious all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. I wake up in the middle of the night and there's a song going through my head and. There's something wrong with it my subconscious is trying to fix while I'm sleeping, you know it's hard it's hard to let it go, but the weekend thing, you just have to accept that's the way it is if you're if you're at the level where we're at, where we're working with bands who have day jobs, you know the weekends right. are going to fill up, and that's that's where you try to enjoy your your Tuesdays and Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's funny too, because
0: like sometimes uh like I have I have two boys, uh seven and ten. Mm-hmm. And like the seven-year-old will come in, into my mix room and be like, Hey, can we watch a show together? I'm like, you know what? Let's watch a show together. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna take a break. Yeah. And I find like we'll turn on a show and my mind just starts to wander off into what. Well, what would happen if I routed this that right. way? And uh-huh. so I yeah. start to like run scenarios in my head, and uh-huh. so staying present in some show that I'm only half interested in, and and sure. really, I'm 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 there just to more hang out with the kids, uh-huh. yeah, than anything. Yeah. So that's always a challenge.
1: Yeah, I think that that uh, you know, we try to we try to get away when we can. You know, I've got three kids, and there's two that are out of the house. There's two, and one's finishing college, and one's in her first year in college. Wow. And so there's one one at home. He's an eighth grader. So yeah, we're starting to to see the other end of the tunnel there. Well, that's that makes it a lot easier. It does, yeah. When they're in yeah. college. Right. Yeah, I think the huge thing that happened for me when, my, when I had younger kids was that touring became no fun. I used to mm. tour quite a bit, but then all of a sudden it was like... After you're gone for a week or ten days, you just start to realize this is stupid. You know, <laughs> there's no no huge career is going to be built on me being gone for another three weeks. You know, and and you start missing your kids and all those thoughts. You're like, this is a waste of time. Why should I be out here playing? That kind of took the fun out of being a, a, a touring musician at that time. And now it's kind of come back around. I feel like I, I, you know, to be gone, it's not that different from being in the studio all the time either. And I don't have the kids the young kids at home, so I don't feel like I'm missing out on that young kid stage as much. You know they're older, and we stay in contact and we talk you know every couple of days and text all the time. and
0: Always a challenge, and obviously very different from those who don't have kids,
1: who right can Just completely oh, dig in and yeah yeah, I think that you know if I think about the Seattle scene of engineers, there's not too many who have young families who have stuck with it. It's a sacrifice for sure.
0: What's, this is uh, always a, a, a question that kind of throws some people, but um, I think is, is something that some people struggle with. What is your relationship with your equipment like and your economic philosophy? In other words, a lot of people struggle with gear lust. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can, and, and those that do, sometimes it can eat them up. Because they just like oh I got oh I gotta buy that I gotta buy this I gotta buy that and right. soon they have more gear than they do clients and they have more credit <laughs> card debt than they do income and sure. just, it just really starts to get out of whack yeah what's been your experience
1: I actually have never and even when I started the studio I always was wary of being a studio owner maybe just kind of through experience of seeing that pressure and how what that pressure put on people. Mm-hmm. through even through my musician stage i've I've you know rarely bought that many pieces of gear i've rarely sold that many pieces of gear either mm-hmm. so i have i have the rickenbacker that i bought in 1981 still you know and i still use it i have you know a small collection of guitars and a small collection of amps that i use and really like on the studio front i've kind of uh Bought the things that seem necessary to do the job. Sure, that I, I, you know, there's lots of things I would like to have, but I tend to not buy it if I don't have the cash to buy it. And having a family to support has kept me from just spending money on gear, especially when you have kids in college. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if the studio, the studio's a business, can afford to to buy a couple things that make working here better, then we'll do that. But it's kind of a, a everybody votes decision. Is this worth the money? It's not uh, up to me to just go, hey, we're going to go get that. I have some things in place to keep me from just uh, putting down the credit card and going to get <laughs> going to get it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's important to keep it small and grow it slowly. You know, there's been times when we've, you know, for quite a while, we looked at, at bigger buildings and thought about expanding. And every time, you know, Seattle's a Boomtown right now, and the rents are horrendous. So we've never really found a spot that that made sense in you know in regards to how much we can charge for a room for a day. And there are already so many killer studios in town that it's not really you know we don't really need another three hundred and fifty dollar room that you can track a band in. There's already I don't know twenty five of them. In some ways, this little tiny spot is a better niche because it's $200 a day and you can get a lot done here. And a lot of engineers can see that too. I th- I've seen quite a few of the mid-sized studios get out of the market in the last couple of years because the rents are going up. They can't charge more for their day. Um, not really. It's not like the studios are, are charging more and the people are, are paying. It's it's going the other way. I,
0: I've had two, two studio situations in my life to compare one against the other, and I've mentioned this numerous times on the show, so those who listen to the show all the time are going, oh, he's talking about that again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I had a smaller studio in uh, Emeryville, California, and then I had a very large Bill Putnam-built studio in San Francisco. I tell you, man, the uh, looking back on it in in retrospect, uh, the small studio, I really wish I had stuck it in there. Mm -hmm. I just wish I had stayed there and just... But it's hard to know at the time, because you think, oh, okay, I've got this business I should grow. I need to get bigger. Things right. need to get bigger. There's some value, I think, in staying relatively small and manageable with super low overhead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And it's less stress. Plus I realized, you know, in all these, these scenarios where I've thought, okay, that could be an awesome room for me to have. And I think a lot of it's just, you know, what is your vision and what would you want in a studio? And you know, there's a certain dream to that that you, you can see. That would mm-hmm. be an awesome thing. I do love the fact that I freelance and I use you know, five or six different rooms around Seattle, depending on the project, depending on the sound we want for the project. You know, I did a record last year that was totally going for the late 80s, big snare drum rock sound. Um, and you know that called for a certain room and I could go find it in the room. It didn't have to be, you know, I wasn't stuck to my one room. And if I was in a place that the where the overhead was 2,500, 3,000 a month, I would never go anywhere else. I would only work in my own room. I like that aspect of it. Uh, it gives me some freedom. And that I think benefits my clients for sure.
0: And I think when you have a small room, you tend to make the best of it. You learn a lot of like, oh, this is a small place, but I can get so much out of this so much value out of this, you know, yeah, yeah. like you, like you say, if you do track a band there, you know, the drummer's like right next to you and right. you can make it work.
1: Yeah. There's an awesome stairwell out the the door. And when people leave the building, I stick microphones out there. It sounds cool.
0: Now, what about uh, mixing work? Do people hire you just to mix? Sure. And when they, when they do your process, is it, is it an in the box flow or is it uh, utilize your, your console at all? Or?
1: It, does i i i do like to mix on the console if it's anything corporate i'll do it in the box because i know there's probably going to be revisions um if it's a music project with a band i'm always mixing on the console and there you know more and more are things in the computer that i'll do the the console that i have here was built with a, a automation system but it doesn't work anymore so I'll do mute. Gee, and f- what a surprise. Yeah, mutes and fades in the in the box. I love the UAD plugins, and those get used a ton. Spring reverbs, tape echoes, tube compressors. There's quite a few of those things here that I like to use and i I just love having my my hands on the board. I work way quicker. I like the fact that when the mix is done, I leave it and I can't come back and tweak one thing you know I'll print a couple safety copies of you know vocal up vocal down some other little little things and then move on. I think that's a good thing to be able to commit and leave it alone.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm discovering a um uh, more and more engineers that are like I don't do recalls. Yeah. If you want if you don't like it I'll mix it again.
1: Well, that is the the option that at this point, you know, it is a remix. I can get pretty close to what it was if I need to go back and tweak something and I've had to do that I prefer to leave it alone and just say, well, that was that day's work. If I, need, if I didn't do it right, I'll go back and do it again.
0: As far as clients and, and cash flow and finances, do you ever deal with clients that try or, or, or ask to pay you over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes that comes up. If I'm really uh, into the record and I want to see it get done, I will totally help people out if, if, if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's periods where I can't, where I just, I need to get paid now, or, you know, I need to be working on something that's going to pay the bills. I'm open to doing that if it's people I trust, for sure. Have you had, have you had problems with that, with people paying or? No, no. I mean, I,
0: I- I have one client that I always let him pay over time because mm-hmm. he's just so reliable Yeah, and, and he, he's always so apologetic and I'm just like, you know what? It's totally fine. We've been doing this for years. You, sure. You don't have to apologize. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting just trying to, um, negotiate. No, I, I don't even say negotiate. I think more, as I get older, I just kind of say, this is what it is. This is how much I charge. Right. And this, and this is what, you know, I'm going to be doing and um that's that if people can't afford it then you know they will they will go elsewhere because we're in in the bay area we're you know we're dealing with a similar thing as you are in seattle you know rents are sure through the roof right um right housing costs are astronomical and uh, i had an
1: interesting conversation with another studio owner here just a week or so ago who was commenting on the the scene here in seattle and one of the things that i've noticed that's changed um With the the tech world employing creatives, I feel like back in the 90s, all the people who were working for Microsoft and and the other tech companies that were in town, Adobe, they were musicians. And so essentially, Microsoft and Adobe were supporting the music scene here. I feel like there's been a shift with the young people who are working for Amazon and some of the big companies here now. They're coming out of college and they're programmers. They're tech people. And they're not musicians, so it's, I feel like there's been a shift in the in the culture here in a lot of ways. That the people who are using the studios are maybe aging, and there's not that many younger people coming in who have you know decent jobs at tech companies because the tech companies are no longer interested in the the weirdos they're looking for the the go-getters now uh, so that's changing the culture in seattle quite a bit and, and i don't know if that's the case in san francisco but it's it's something that he mentioned to me and i was like yeah you're actually right it used to be that all my clients were musicians who had decent tech jobs you know now they're either musicians who are full-time musicians young people who you know are still just slugging it out are you seeing a dip in, in business over, over the course of time? No, Do I don't feel? think so. I mean, I, I feel that like my career is, is, is totally steady, but I f- feel like probably for the studio scene that it's, it's not growing as much as the city is growing. There's lots of money coming into, town, into the city, but I don't feel like culturally the, the music scene is growing at the same rate. And maybe that's because the the creatives are being forced out. You know, the the young people, the artists, it's harder to live here, so they're going other places. They're moving to Portland, they're moving to Bellingham. You know, they're they're going away.
0: Yeah, there's there's definitely um, a large contention of musicians. Some some have stuck it out in San Francisco, but uh, many are coming east to Oakland, mm-hmm. Berkeley, and even further east past that, or they're going north. Or, you know, right. It's right. definitely it's it's changed dramatically. I've yeah. been here since the late eighties and um it's definitely not the same.
1: And is your studio located in San Francisco? Well or, or, uh, I no longer have that studio. Okay. But I, I uh-huh. did
0: I did have a studio uh, from about June of twenty of two thousand seven uh-huh. to about uh January of twenty twelve. Okay. And as, you know, those years and somebody who's been at this for a while, you would under, understand and obviously recognize that. Two thousand seven, hmm, that's right on the edge of you know the country just kind of
1: mm-hmm. taking
0: a yeah. taking a dump financially. So that wasn't a great thing to open a studio with sure. a large overhead, right? But um, I, I will say, in retrospect, getting out of that studio, best thing I ever did. Huh. Because Lots of the lower. overhead, yeah yeah really yeah. the overhead it it made me realize wow uh, the lesson learned here was in you know business one o one keep your expenses low so yeah now now I'm situated at home in a room um in, in basically it's a it's a spare bedroom that has some very odd dimensions to it, so acoustically it's i'm in the process of kind of i've been tweaking it over time, mm-hmm. but working from home has allowed me to uh stay close to home and my wife works a corporate job so I'm the one that is out there you know getting the kids cool I'm Mr. Yeah. Mom That's great So that's you know with young kids I think uh as you know as a parent that's that's kind of nice
1: Yeah absolutely from that perspective
0: As far as uh your interaction with other engineers or studio owners in Seattle or in mm-hmm. in, in the area What's that like? Is there, do people still communicate or do they kind of disappear into their own little worlds and come out once in a while for a small event?
1: I feel like, well, I feel that Seattle has always had a super supportive uh, community in amongst engineers and studios. And there's still a great Yahoo news group of Northwest Studios that that people post questions to and people have discussions all the time. It's been a while since there's been too many events where I've, you know, seen the studio cats at. I guess there's the Recording Academy events, but I haven't done a lot of those. You know, and typically I'm working late and miss a bunch of those events anyway. And I think that's the same for a lot of studio owners and studio cats everybody's super supportive if you have a question or need to talk to somebody uh i've never felt like there's been a competition for clients or or anything along those lines people are very very open and helpful Hmm. it's it's a good good place to to be in that business you know well
0: so where do you see uh the next five to ten years as far as Your career in recording—do you you see staying at the place you're at and just kind of continuing on the trajectory? Yeah, I think
1: um, you know. I think there's it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. I I feel like the work I'm doing keeps getting more interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. The people I'm working with and the projects. Right now, I'm very optimistic about it. I feel like there's lots of work to do and lots of leads. Um, I'm still playing guitar and bands actively um i'm actually going to go on tour this summer with a really cool project that um involves nico case laura veers and katie lang who've made a record together wow they did the record with tucker Martin down in portland oh and i know that, tucker yeah that's coming out in june and uh i'm going to be the guitarist on the tour so that'll be a fun summertime thing to do and then uh, I have a band called The Tripwires, and we keep making records. We went to Spain about a year and a half ago and did a tour there, and that's, you know, for the most part, hobby and fun, but occasionally we get to do some cool things. Um, so I just keep plugging away at all that, too. It's, you know... F- do you find that as a
0: player, because I, I, I play drums, and I find that staying out playing um, keeps me connected uh, musically, but also it's a good way to... Be out there and talking to people. Yeah. As opposed sure. to disappearing in the studio. Does yeah. that
1: s- still hold true for you? Oh, absolutely. I think that's, you know, one of the huge reasons to keep playing music is to keep being in the clubs and forcing yourself to get out and be involved. Cause yeah, certainly if I'm working heavily to go to the show after the session is sometimes like, oh, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too tired. Um and yeah, I mean it it is it is who you run into and talk about making music with
0: here's here's a question that you probably don't get asked a lot but as a recording engineer or as recording engineers i think one of the things that i never hear anybody talk about is retirement
1: oh yeah what's work until you you die baby yeah i mean is is that the deal or do you are you actively saving for retirement I, i am not but uh let me get my kids through college first and then i'll see about it yeah yeah
0: i always uh Retirement? What do you what do you mean? I'm gonna right. keep working in, until they stop paying me. Right. But then obviously when they stop paying me, I'm gonna have to, you know,
1: sure <laughs> figure something well, out. Well, some people uh buy a bunch of gear and that's their retirement retirement plan. Yeah. Um I haven't quite gone there, although there's been times where I was like, Oh yeah, I could, you know, invest heavily in some gear and then you'd have that to sell off. I don't have any uh I'm I'm not very not very smart. <laughs> with that, concerns. Yeah. I'm not,
0: you know, taking any money from these people as, as for advertisers. But one, one thing that I kind of jumped onto just because I don't think I'm the most, you know, I'm not financially savvy with the stock market or any of sure. that stuff. But one thing I did sign up for was a, a Betterment account. Betterment is like a, a uh, I guess it's like a, a it's they call it robo investing, mm-hmm. and I guess the only reason I kind of got into it was it seemed like the fees were super low, and I could check and kind of monitor how things were going on my phone. Whereas before, okay. it always right. like four hundred and one ks and all that always seemed kind of distant from me. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. I've got to call somebody to find out what's going on, and and this right. kind of brings it to my yeah to my level, I guess. Yeah. Down to my my small understanding, sure, of how it works. But I'm always curious about what what people uh, are doing uh, with regards to that. So,
1: yeah, and I do do uh, worry about it. And you know, I think the future is, uh, is it's going to be easier. And I, you know, I, I own a house, so that's something that I feel like uh, you know at least there's something there to fall back on should I need to bail. I own a exactly. house in a, in a nice part of town. It's uh, I've owned it for 17 years. So that's a little insurance right there. I'll figure it out. Yeah. If I it's need it to. can be an yeah. you know I don't mean to to put you in an an awkward position there. No, no, it no it, I think that's I think it's true for a lot of, you know, freelancers in general and it's not like we're part of a union or there's we're not very organized uh the audio workers as you might call us how to organize your, your freelance life and, and prepare for the future. Well, cool. Nice to meet you. Thanks nice a lot for too, doing Matt. this interview
0: and uh, look forward on Monday.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Yeah.
0: Johnny Singster on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks for tuning in and listening to that. That was very, very cool. Very nice to talk to Johnny. And uh, as usual, I hope you got a lot out of it. I certainly did. But of course, we are at a time, and so Cliff Truesdale, of course, chimes in with the music there, and we want to thank him, and we want to thank Chuck Smith at the top, and we want to thank Cole Williams for his help and his editing capability, and we want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors, and want to thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,